This is the Word of God. Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Verse 21. Timothy... My fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Cordus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You may be seated. Alright, so last time we talked about the importance of making it so that there is a culture where there's an ability to argue, where there's an ability to wrestle, where there's an ability for the young men to be able to engage in question and challenge, and also at the same time that there's an ability to keep the borders. So we've talked about, we've been talking about a culture of honor and all the greetings that have occurred and how the protection of the church against those who cause divisions and offenses is in the context of that beauty. And so when we understand the beauty of the city of God, when we understand the beauty of the covenant community and the importance of maintaining that, maintaining the culture of honor, maintaining the love, maintaining the service, maintaining an openness and a humility, when we are concerned about maintaining those things, the protection makes sense. And so in light of the desire to preserve a godly culture, we then understand more that urging or that exhortation to the brethren. Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. So what we need to do today, I'm going to be talking about the due process there. Because we talked about how, what is the tendency amongst churches to either ignore that, to have no discipline, or to exercise discipline tyrannically. Now, in order to avoid either, we have to diligently engage in due process. And let me tell you what. Due process is exhausting, and so is teaching about due process. It's a difficult thing, because what you're doing is you're going through when everything goes wrong. So, You're teaching about the mess. Now, teaching about the mess, people don't care about the teaching about the mess until they're in the mess. When you're in the mess, you're like, where's the fine print? I need the fine print. Outside of the mess, the fine print sounds boring. It's sort of like preparing for war. Remember last time we talked about how when you deal with new Christians, it's sort of like you have somebody who comes along, and what they do is they say, I need your help, and then they punch you in the face. And then, right after punching you in the face, they say, I need your help. And so you have to figure out how do you deal with conflict, because you're going to, as we begin to disciple, as we begin to evangelize, as we deal with people, as we're trying to do mercy ministry, as we're trying to deal with the mess of people's lives, you have to know how to do it. So if you don't pay attention in training, you won't be able to deal with combat. And so I'm asking you to... Come in and to consider your own history and the way that you can deal with conflict resolution teaching and make it more interesting is by thinking about your own past. Now here's the reason people don't always want to do that. Because oftentimes you find you did things wrong. And it's painful to think about the places where you've failed. I'm asking you to lean into that pain. And to seek to avoid the same mistakes by learning to do conflict resolution correctly. So let's go in. I exhort you, brethren, 
Remember this word exhort is to urge. It's to, it's to push on. It's parakalo. It's to come alongside and strengthen. Remember we have the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. He comes alongside and he gives strength. So here we have this idea of here's a word for strengthening. He's giving strength because taking note of and avoiding people that you have to is not fun. It is awkward. It is hard. It is difficult. And so he's saying, be strengthened. This is to the brethren. The brethren are covenanted brothers. You have a brotherhood, a sworn brotherhood in baptism and renewed in the Lord's Supper. And so that covenanted brotherhood is the body that is to work together to note those who seek to tear apart what God has joined together by covenant. To take note of those who seek to offend and cause to stumble the little ones. And so, this idea of an exhortation to be aware, to preserve that covenanted brotherhood. Now, taking note is to watch for, to notice, to pay attention to those who cause divisions that are contrary to the doctrine you learned from the Word and to avoid those noted people. is to note those who cause offenses, offenses that are contrary to the doctrine that you learn, the doctrine from the Word, and you avoid those noted people. So both divisions and offenses. So we talked about the definitions of these things, but let's review because it's important. Who causes divisions? What are these divisions? Remember the word here in the Greek, oftentimes when you see the word division, or divisive, the word is actually heresy or heretic. Okay? And it's important to check that. Because many of the warnings are against false doctrine and those who teach false doctrine. This is one particular case where the word is actually more division. It's dikostasius. And so this is to stand between or to, to have two parts that are, that are cut and standing separate would be sort of the idea of the, the, the Greek word there. You can see the root of the word dichotomy, for example, at the beginning, right? This idea of, of having two things that are cut apart. So, who causes divisions? Heretics cause division. Partisans and personality followers. Those who are proudly uncorrectable. Those who are proudly ignorant. Those who are supporters of some particular sin. A false view of what's good. Let's consider those. Heretics can be the ones who have the pulpit, or they can be the ones who are listening to the pulpit. Heretics cause division. If you have the pulpit and you are a heretic, you are seeking to destroy the church of God, you are seeking to murder souls, you are giving death rather than life, giving poison water rather than fresh water. And so it is important that you judge what is taught. Right? Whoever is teaching is to teach from the Word of God. And whoever is listening is to judge. You are commanded to judge. We have questions and opportunity for objections from the men, from those who are voting members and those with speaking rights. And so that is meant to help to deal with that. The idea of engaging with heresy that's publicly taught it should be dealt with immediately. If I teach heresy today, it should be objected to today. It doesn't go through private discussion, and then you bring witnesses, and then you bring it to the public. It's public. I said it publicly. It should be dealt with publicly on the spot. It would be as if I just walked up to the front row and slapped somebody. You should rebuke that on the spot. It's a sin. It's public, and it's grievous. Heresy is a big deal. Now, partisanship is also something that causes divisions. When your loyalty, rather than to Christ, rather than to the word of God, is to some faction. And so, Paul rebukes this in his letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. And in that, he says, some people say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And there's even the faction that's so holy that they're of Christ. Right? You love that, right? When people say, no, I'm not willing to take some human label. I'm just a Christian. But you have a very particular set of things that you're dividing over, some sort of human doctrine. 
right? So it's not the name. It's not that it's sin to call yourself a Calvinist. It's not that it's sin to call yourself Reformed. It's not that it's sin to call yourself a Presbyterian. The issue is, if you are making the person or the party the authority, and there's a danger here for conservative Christians to do that with the Republican Party. The Republican Party does not submit itself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to judge it by the word of God and not to just blindly follow it. Conservative radio, conservative podcasts, are you judging their policy prescriptions by the word of God? Because they are not the authority. The word of God is the authority. And so we have to look to what does the Bible teach about politics, but also what does the Bible teach about everything. And so when we deal with partisanship or personality followers, that's the danger is looking to something as the authority other than the word of God. The proudly uncorrectable who will not listen or argue back. They reject process. You ever had anybody who tries to act like we don't need to fight about this, we don't need to deal with this, and they just try to end the conflict. They're unwilling to engage on it. That is, that can look like the person's trying to take the high road. The reality is, if you won't talk about offenses, then what you're doing is perpetuating offenses. You are creating division. So the willingness to put time into discussing conflict, whether it's private or semi-private with some witnesses already, or whether it's a public thing, to be willing to engage on it. And then you can think about those who are proudly ignorant. We don't need to talk about that. That's not important. That's not the main thing. That's not the gospel. That's not the whatever. We don't, we don't need to deal with that. It's not important. You're picking at gnats. If it's in the word of God, it's important enough that he, God, thought it was worth recording in his eternal truth delivered to us. You know, straining at gnats was actually a requirement of the law. They were unclean. Gnats were unclean. You strain at gnats because gnats are unclean. And if you strain out wine through like a cheesecloth, you can get the gnats out. Jesus didn't say, you know what? The problem with the Pharisees is they care about the details. Why were they trying so hard? Why were they thinking about God's word so much? Why did they want to think about the details that God had revealed? Every jot and tittle? Come on! Right? That's not Jesus' complaint. Jesus' complaint is, they're straining at gnats, and over there on the side, they're eating honking pieces of camel, which is the largest unclean animal. Okay, so the idea is, they are attacking details of other people while doing ridiculous, grievous sins at the same time. That's the idea. So what we need to do is we need to deal with the bigger things, the more foundational things first. Right? If your life is just a total mess, it's just totally destroyed, nothing's going right, you don't have anything in order, okay, get the big things in order, but eventually you should deal with the small things. There's an order to things, but we need to care about details too. It's the little foxes that destroy the garden. And so we need to care about the details. So a proud ignorance is a danger. And not caring about it. Not looking into it. Not engaging on the point. It doesn't matter. If it's revealed in God's word, it matters. And guess what? Every area of life is touched on by God's word. So supporters of sin out of a false view of the good. Some people who cause divisions are people who, for example, want to allow for some sin or to praise some sin. So, for example, in the PCA right now, there's a conference called Revoice that is trying to make it so that you can, without repenting, identify with some sort of sexual attraction that is not given in the Bible in command. Right? It's appropriate for a man to be attracted to his wife and for a wife to be attracted to her husband and we are supposed to control sexual desire. If you find yourself sexually desiring somebody who's not your spouse, that is sin. What you have to do is to control that and to focus your thoughts properly. If you think that's impossible, okay, the law of God is impossible to keep. You still acknowledge sin as sin. You don't identify as, I identify as an adulterer. Right? You, you don't do that. You don't say, I identify as a gay Christian. 
Because you're not saying, this is my identity, and this is good, and I'm bringing something good in. That's the same as saying, I identify as an adulterer Christian. Now, in the sense that you're confessing sin, and there's a disorder of desire, and you need to repent of that, and ask the Lord to refresh, restore, fix, reorder, all right? But you don't pretend like something that's sin is not sin. So if there is somebody who's trying to call evil good or good evil, they are causing division. These are the types of people that cause division. So I'd ask you to think about those things, examine yourself for those, We're all going to have tendencies towards dividing in some way. And it's very easy to arrogantly push off conflicts. It's very easy to be uncorrectable. It's very easy to call something good evil or something that's evil good in order to justify ourselves or to avoid causing conflict and and being looked down upon by the world. These are the kinds of things that we have to be aware of. Who else causes divisions? Those who fail to appear for the required assembly of the saints make a division. That's a, this is reality, right? We're supposed to go, here is the assembly. Here we are together. This is the time when this is the whole body gathered together. And if you don't appear, what are you doing? You are not assembling. You are not uniting. You are not being a part of that body. And so it effectually causes a division. Those who do not partake in the private work with the saints make a division. If you come to the public assembly and then do nothing to do dominion work or discipleship work with the saints, if you're not being hospitable, not engaging in fellowship, then you are coming together for a sign and rejecting the reality. If you're not seeking to make it so that you are living your life with the saints being blessed and blessing the saints, then you are effectively causing division. And it will make the body very brittle. If you have very important work, and you know someone very little, and you are called to do very important work with them, high stakes, high importance, high pressure, and you don't know the person you're working with, what are the chances that the pressure of that work are going to result in splintering? On the other end, if you get to know each other, you spend a lot of time with each other, you seek to build rapport, you seek to bless each other, that makes it so you have relational power, relational weight, that makes it so you can deal with the pressures of work. The church is called to disciple the nations. The church is called to engage with the world, to evangelize. The church is called to do mercy work. The church is called to minister to each other, to bless each other, to use the gifts that we have to build each other up. That is high importance, high pressure work. It's the real stuff of real life. And if you don't have relationship you're not going to be able to tolerate other people coming into your space and trying to do something that's very important. It is going to be intolerable. And so you have to build relationship because if you don't have relationship, why are you going to care when somebody comes and brings a rebuke to you? Why are you going to care when somebody tries to engage with you about the truth of God? Who are you? Well, it's just a person you're covenanted with. That's all. Just a person with a bond in blood. With life or death promises. Just a person that you've promised to do the most important thing with. That's all. A brother who's been baptized with one God. A brother who shares in the renewing of the covenant in the Lord's Supper. If we don't engage with each other in private ministry, in private work, in 
blessing each other outside of the public assembly, we're going to tend to shatter. The next category is those who fail to learn and to uphold the basis of doctrinal unity. The basis of doctrinal unity is the word of God. But what we have to deal with is the church is at a certain level of maturity in history. Okay, so if you were in the third century, you would use the doctrine of the Trinity as a major rallying point. That's chapter 2 for us. We have more than 30 of them. We have accomplished a lot as a church since the third century. In the fourth century, you go the Incarnation... This is the thing that we divide over. Okay, that's good. It's good. We've had about 1,600 years since then. So the Protestant canon, the doctrine of justification, right? Worship. There are things that we are called to understand because the church has worked through it. And it's not that the church has the authority. It's not that a confessional statement has the authority. The word of God has the authority. But the question is, what does the word of God say? Is it knowable? Has the church worked through these arguments? Can we benefit from the work that has already come before us? Can we, by considering the arguments that have already been laid out, can we more quickly come to conclusion that if we were just forced to deal with it in the 5th century ourselves? So, those who fail to learn and to uphold the basis of doctrinal unity cause division. So, when you are baptized, typically that's going to mean that you are a child in the faith, And what you're doing is you're trying to learn. You're trying to become a young man in the faith. And you're trying to become a father in the faith. And so this idea of when you are early on, you are trying to take in the milk and to grow. And then as you begin to become familiar with it and to use it and to have strength, you start to fight amateurishly, but fight nonetheless. And so you are a young man. And once you are familiar with it and skilled and you can train others, you are a father in the faith. And so you're called to progress. There's a duty to progress. And so you have a duty to learn the doctrinal basis of unity. To consider our confessional standard and to search the scriptures to see if those things are so. And if they are so in the scriptures, then it's your duty to uphold them. Now, there are categories inside of this as to the types of people that are divisive. There are those who teach falsehood even after being shown the truth. They go through some process. They might even agree upon being shown. But then they don't apply it. You overhear them and they're teaching the same error. You see them doing the same sin. They won't Make the change. Well, then you have to go through the conflict resolution again. But you see how it's wasteful? If you have to go through the same things over and over again, that is resource-wasting, time-wasting, relationship-point-burning. It tends towards division. So being careful to deal with correction carefully. Refusing to affirm what's been demonstrated from the Word. You might come and sit down, you might talk about things, but you're unwilling to work through the arguments in a peaceable and gentle way. Sadly, so Martin Luther, great man, great hero, great defender of the faith, recoverer of the gospel, proclaimer of the gospel against the enemy of Antichrist, being able to tear down false gospels and false claims of authority. But when he sat down with Ulrich Zwingli at the table to discuss the Lord's Supper, He would not deal with the arguments in an orderly way. When talking about the texts that say, this is my body, Luther would not deal with the explanations that were offered by Zwingli. He would not engage on them. And as Zwingli was explaining, look, this is my body doesn't have to mean that the bread is physically the body of Jesus. And this is my blood doesn't mean that the cup of wine literally has to be the blood of Jesus in a physical way, and he was explaining through that, Luther just started carving on the table in front of him, hoc est corpus meum, which is Latin for this is my body. 
he was just ignoring the conversation, ignoring the points of argumentation, and just reasserting, simply pounding on or carving on the table. And in doing so, he was, though a great hero of the faith, in this particular place, he was failing to affirm what was demonstrable from the Word of God, failing to deal with things in a peaceable and gentle way. Now, one of the great things people attack Luther for is not being peaceable enough, not being gentle enough. I mean, you, write what he, you read what he writes against the papacy or against Erasmus or whatever. You think, that's not very peaceable or gentle. But I'll tell you what, in those cases, he was right to do it. And so the issue is not just, is it wrong always to be combative? Is it wrong always to be rough? No, it's not. But Zwingli was not the Pope. Zwingli was not somebody denying the grace of God. So when you're dealing with somebody else who is confessing the true gospel, confessing the authority of the scriptures, engaging, engaging with the detailed argumentation is important. And in fact, frankly, if you look at the history of it, Luther dealt more patiently with Erasmus across years than he dealt with Zwingli. And it's just weird. So it's just, this is a place where he failed in public conflict and by not engaging there caused a substantial rift in the Reformation, the difference between the Reformed and Lutheran churches. And had he engaged better there with Zwingli, we may have seen a much greater unity of the Reformation. And so there's a, a danger there of causing in an unwillingness to listen to arguments and to deal with your uh, conflict in a peaceable and gentle way, you can unnecessarily create division. The other one is to be unclear. And this is the refuge of heretics. They love unclarity. Okay? To be unclear and unwilling to become more clear. Unwilling to come to the table and deal with the arguments in an orderly manner out of fear of being nailed down. The historical example I've given to you is the debate over the iota. And iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. It's an I, basically. And so in what happened in the debate about Nicaea... Um, where you have the debate about the Trinity, is first, you have three terms there. Look at page two. You have the three terms. The question is, is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is there a shared being, like a oneness of the divinity, or do they have a difference of being? So the Arians who believe that Jesus was created would say that Jesus is not equal to God. He has a different being. And so that view would be called heterousias. Okay, like hetero, hetero means different. Heterosexual, you have a man attracted to someone who's different, a woman. Okay, so this idea of heterousias is the idea of having a different substance or being where these heretics were saying that God the Father and God the Son had different beings. Now, the orthodox way the biblical way of dealing with that is to say God the Father and God the Son have the same substance, the same being. God the Father is God and God the Son is God. Equal. Same with the Holy Spirit. The heresy that tried to come in after Nicaea, the, the emphasis that was given was to these people that were trying to avoid clarity and trying to avoid being condemned and they started to say Omoousias, which is the exact same word as omoousias, except there's an iota. And that iota changes it from same to similar. And so you'd say the Father is of a similar substance to the Son, as opposed to of the same substance. Well, I'll tell you what, that's a lot better than of a different substance, right? Different substance, a lot worse, just heresy. Similar substance, you can say, yeah, it's similar. So similar, in fact, that it's the same. Compromise language. There's the barbarians at the gates. We've got the enemies of the church everywhere. People, people are doing all sorts of bad things. Society's falling apart. Why are we fighting over an iota? The result, largely, was that the majority ended up adopting that position using the omoiousios, and Athanasius famously suffered being kicked out of his church repeatedly, being kicked out of the empire repeatedly, and 
was unwilling to compromise. And his steadfastness is frequently cited in terms of the ultimate victory of the Trinitarian doctrine. And we have to be willing, like Athanasius, when he was told, look Athanasius, the world is against you, his response was to say, then Athanasius is against the world. The willingness to do that, to not be afraid, to not be afraid of man, but to fear God. You have to be willing to divide rightly in order to avoid being divisive sinfully. You have to be willing to be clear. The divisive, the ones who want to destroy the truth and tear away followers, away from Christ after themselves, want to be unclear and they're unwilling to become more clear. They're willing to come to the table and to deal with the arguments in an orderly manner out of a fear of being nailed down. So clarity is what we are called to. Now, the same is true with matters of sin and practice. And we talked about this last time. I'm just going to zoom over this. There's a, you can be uncorrectable. You can be proud and not wanting correction and trying to avoid circumstances where you'd be corrected. And you can punish people who correct you, even when they're right. And you can make it with negative after the fact, as opposed to applying balm to make it good when the resolution comes. We are called to deal with conflict according to process. We have to resolve conflicts rather than to leave them open. Open conflicts are bleeding open wounds. They bring death to the church. They destroy good relationship. They cause scarring and hardening and they make it so that we do not work well together. The process for dealing with division is seeking the resolution of conflicts. You identify differences that are sin versus things that are just opinion. And you try to carefully not require people to adopt your opinions, but you do seek to deal with things that are actual requirements from the Word of God. So seeking to understand each other is an important part of that. Now, besides divisions, there's also offenses, which is scandala, are the things that cause offenses, stumbling stones, scandals. One of the things that's necessary to deal with scandals and to try to minimize them is we have the ongoing teaching of the doctrine of the word. We seek to, in individual conflicts, bring the word of God to convict people of their wrongdoing and tell them what they should put on, what they should do instead. And then there's an effort with authority to help to train people in righteousness. So the officers of the church are called to that. Fathers are called to do that in their homes. Mothers are called to do that. There's a duty to help people to walk in the way and to help people to put off sin. So we have to care about division and offenses. And we need to judge those divisions and offenses by the doctrine of the word. There are necessary divisions. And there are necessary offenses. The gospel is an offense to the world. You will offend people when you proclaim the truth of God. And you will cause division. Families will divide. Friends will divide. Religious institutions will divide with the preaching of the truth. We will often be called names... We will often be accused of being divisive if we clearly proclaim the truth. And so what we have to do is to fear God and not fear man. So, we are called to avoid, on page 3, we're called to avoid people who are divisive and who cause offenses contrary to the doctrine. Matthew 18 and Acts 15 are the key texts for understanding biblical conflict resolution. I strongly encourage you to read them and to read them carefully. They are incredibly insightful and powerful texts. And if you look for how to apply them in resolving conflicts, you will find many treasures there. I have laid out for you certain key principles here of how to resolve conflict. And these apply regardless of the forum. And so... The first thing I want to go over with you is the four G's of conflict resolution. And listen to me. If you have children 
or if you have a spouse, or if you're a church member, or you're a church officer, and you don't have these four G's memorized, then you either need to have an incredible instinct for biblical conflict resolution, or you need to find a better tool to memorize. Because if you don't have a tool to memorize, when the pressure comes of conflict resolution, you're not going to do it right. The only way you're going to do it right is if you intentionally, by faith, do what God tells you to do. And so, understanding these things will help you to deal with that. These are forms. These are the judo forms to help you to be able to deal with this. So, engaging with these things in the home, with your children, dealing with these things in the household, to help to memorize and ingrain them, to habituate yourself, is important. The four G's of conflict resolution. The first one is the goal. What's the goal of all conflict resolution? To glorify God. Why deal with conflict? Why deal with people? Why not just stay home, watch movies, play video games? Because this is for the glory of God. That's the purpose of life. Life is meaningless and boring and lonely if you don't have shared mission. The shared mission of the glory of God is the reason to deal with conflict resolution. The glory of God as a goal justifies the extensive, expensive, exasperating process of conflict resolution. It's expensive. It spends time and energy that you could do other stuff with. It provides a formal and orderly meeting or series of meetings in private with mediation or witnesses or in a public court. This is the reason to do it. The glory of God. Why don't most churches have church discipline? Because it's expensive and extensive and exasperating. Church discipline is rough. It's difficult to deal with. It is awkward and hard and it takes a lot of time. And it focuses in on unpleasant things. You're not going to do it if you don't believe it's necessary to glorify God because he commands you to do it. So, when you do engage and you choose to go talk to somebody, right? you know every time you rebuke somebody, you've got the risk that this thing could spiral into public conflict. It could go to a church court. You go to somebody and say, I think it was Simeon you did that. You are opening yourself up to the possibility that they reject it, that you have to argue, that it results in bringing in other people, that it eventually results in going to a church court. That's a big deal. So you might just go, well, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. That does not seem worth it. I do not care. Well, the Bible says if you don't rebuke your brother, you hate him. You hate people if you don't rebuke them. If you just let people go in their sins, and you just go, yeah, I know, we're covenanted, and we take the Lord's Supper together, and all that kind of stuff, and you know, whatever, but I don't really care. Just let him do the thing. I don't care if his life is useless. I don't care if he's consumed with this sin. I don't care if he just has to deal with this growing sin in his life. It is better for me to watch him and laugh at him from a distance and to maybe talk about him behind his back than to go and tell him. Because that could result in me having to go through conflict resolution. So we are required to do this. If somebody offends you in a way where you can't just overlook it, if it's something where you're not able to just overlook it, and overlooking means you're not bothered by it, you're not thinking about it, you're not talking about it with other people, you're not using it against the person. If you can't do that, you have to rebuke them. So, in order to do that well, if there was a conflict where something happened, the first thing you want to do is to make it easier for the other person to hear you. So step two is, when you go to rebuke somebody, think first, did I do anything to cause this or to contribute to this? And start by confessing, getting the log out of your own eye before you take a speck out of somebody else's. If you are just observing somebody doing something you had no part in it, you just saw somebody do some grievous sin that you have to deal with? Okay, you just go straight into rebuking them. If you 
really examine yourself carefully and find no sin in the process, all right, fine, there's nothing, don't, don't make up something to confess. Don't say, I'm sorry that I was breathing and thereby continued to live so that I was there for you to sin against. Or you, don't, you don't come up with something that's not an excuse. If you didn't violate the law of God, you don't apologize. Right, this is a rule. If you didn't violate the law of God, you don't apologize. So, you don't get the log out making stuff up. But you do start out with thinking about, did I do something to cause offense here that contribute to the fight? You then go and you gently rebuke. You draw your brother. You talk to him about what's going on. And your job is to convict. Now, somebody might say, wait a second, wait a second. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict. You can't convict anybody. Are you God? No. The only one that can internally convict, that can bring on conviction, a recognition of the guilt, is the Holy Spirit. But it's your job to take the word of God and to apply it and to say, this is sin. You did this thing. This proves that you sinned. This is a charge. Here's the evidentiary basis. person then will either be convicted internally or they will harden themselves to that. Well, they might offer a reason why your proof is not proof. They might give a just defense. If they give a just defense, okay, that can bring an end to it. But assuming your rebuke is right, at the end of that, what happens when things go well is reconciliation. Okay. You've done the prophetic work of bringing a charge. A person's heard. They've repented. You need to do the priestly work. That priestly work involves seeking to enjoy the reality of peace, love, unity, and fellowship. You seek to restore. You seek to work together. You seek to rebond. You seek to apply balm. You might go, why do I have to do that? They're the one that did something wrong. Yeah. And if they were perfect, you wouldn't need to apply balm. But guess what? We all have weaknesses. And so because we have weaknesses, once you forgive somebody, if you don't make an effort to reestablish, then there's going to be a tendency to separate for a rift to be generated, even though there's a promise of forgiveness. Unless there's actually coming back together, the tendency is going to be to drift apart. So, in order to make that go well, right? there are the seven A's of an apology, and there's the four promises of forgiveness. These are the things that allow for reconciliation so that you can then actually go back to fellowshipping. So, the seven A's of an apology. First, there's address all the parties involved. Okay, that's the forum. If it's a private offense, you go to the person in private. If it's in front of some other people, okay, apologize to them on the spot or deal with it with those people present. If it's public, you deal with it in public. You address the parties that are involved, the people who witnessed. If I get into a fight with my wife in front of the kids... I need to, if I was wrong, go back and apologize to her and do it in front of the kids. Ouch. Avoid weasel words. Your job, if you say sorry, is to make sure you disambiguate. Are you just saying, I'm sorry that your life is so hard? Or are you saying, I'm sorry that I did something wrong? Which is it? Are you just sympathizing or are you admitting wrongdoing? If it's not clear, you, my friend, have used weasel words. If it is clear, good job. But you have to be clear about which one you're doing. You avoid weasel words. You avoid pretending to apologize. You avoid the politician apology. You are clear. Are you apologizing or are you sympathizing? You don't want to Pretend to be apologizing while just being sympathetic. Remember, it is sin to apologize to acknowledge fault when you have not broken God's law. You're calling evil good or good evil. 
So then, when you're actually apologizing, you need to admit what you have done, acknowledge harms you have caused, accept the consequences, commit to alter your behavior, and ask for forgiveness. Those are the five elements of the actual apology. Admitting the wrongdoing is saying, I broke this commandment. If you couldn't point to the commandment, again, don't apologize. So, that means in order to apologize well, you have to kind of know the law of God. And so, in knowing the law of God, you're able to say, I have violated the law of God. I have offended you in this way. This was wrong. You know how much more satisfying an apology is when somebody identifies what they've actually done? If you just say, I'm sorry. Sorry for what? Oh, the things that I did. The unclarity about an apology destroys its satisfactory nature. If you say, I sinned against you by dishonoring you in violation of the fifth commandment. I usurped what was yours. Right? That's so much more specific and clear and it acknowledges wrong. And so knowing the law of God so that you can then admit specifically what you did, what sin you committed, what commandment you broke. And then there are harms that are caused. And here's the thing. It's particularly important to acknowledge harms that are restorable. Right? If I damage your reputation, okay, what I need to do is I need to go back and publicize the repentance. But if I own a newspaper and I publish that you did something wrong, I better republish on the same level of publicity or better how what I said was wrong. When the corrections page is a little blurb on the back of the last page or you know, just in the little corner there, that is not fulfilling it, right? If I, if I teach heresy from the pulpit, I need to repent of it from the pulpit. If I harmed your reputation in front of four people, I need to go back to those four people. And I need to tell them how what I said was wrong. That idea of acknowledging the restorable pieces. Those are the harms. You're finding the harms, especially the things that are restorable. Then you accept the consequences. You look at what's the biblical maximum that somebody could require me to pay back, and you're willing to give that. Okay, so you might go, well, the Bible says you're still an ox. You've got to pay four times that back. All right. So the church court examines the situation and says, you need to pay back four times what you stole because it's, it's capital that could have produced income. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to deal with the consequences up to the biblical maximum? The commitment to alter behavior and attitudes and words. Are you learning, what, what, what is the false belief I had that caused me to commit this particular sin. And you repent of those false beliefs, and if you said something or did something that was sinful, you're committing to not do that, but instead to do something to put on. Right? You can't just take stuff off. If you repent and just say, this is wrong, I'm not going to do that anymore, what's going to fill the void? The same sin's going to come back, or some other sin's going to come back, unless you intentionally seek to apply the word of God to do a positive command. So if you go, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry, I dishonored you. I'm not going to do that anymore. Okay, what are you going to do? Are you going to positively honor? Okay, instead of saying this dishonoring thing to your parents, what's the positive thing you're going to say? What's the honoring thing you're going to say? So the commitment to alter involves a putting off and a putting on. And then, after those things, there's an ability to ask for forgiveness. Now, you might go, do I have to do this for every time I ever do the slightest offense against anybody? No. A lot of times people just accept a quick apology. But I'll tell you what, if you admit that what you did was wrong and the person who's been offended wants a full apology, you should be willing to give it. But if, if what you did was wrong and they ask for it, they go, you know, I, I'd like you to deal with this more fully. Okay, why, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? It's because of pride, right? You may go, oh, i got stuff to do, there's things to do, and, and I don't want to deal with this, this is exasperating. That's a part of humbling yourself, is acknowledging these things, being willing to repent. So that right there. I'll tell you what, you start to take seriously having to repent of sins, it helps you to avoid them. It helps you to avoid them. To put them off. 
So then, somebody goes through all that, and you tell them you forgive them. Does that have any meaning? What does it mean when you tell somebody you forgive them? When you tell somebody you forgive them, you are promising four things. These are implicit in the forgiveness. You are promising to restore fellowship as brothers. That means you're willing to work together for the glory of God. You might not like the person. You might not want to forgive them, but you have duties to forgive under certain circumstances. And you are agreeing to go back to working with them as a brother. So, the next thing you're promising is I will not dwell on this incident without a duty to do so. I'm not going to encourage alienation. I'm not going to think about this sin and then, as a result, harden myself towards you, even though I've already told you I'll forgive you. You're not going to bring it up. The third thing is you're not going to bring it up again without a duty to do so. I'm not going to discourage you by just going, you remember the time you did this thing? This wrong thing? You're not going to unnecessarily point out the past sin. One of the things that uh, siblings are particularly good at is bringing up embarrassing memories of siblings. Remember that time when you did this stupid thing and it was really stupid and you looked stupid? Parents, it is your duty to train children not to do that. They are dishonoring each other. They are exposing each other's shame. And they are bringing back up old offenses and creating alienation and discouragement. That is something that we need to not have happen. We need to pull that back and seek to honor each other. So when you forgive somebody, you're promising to not bring it up again without a duty to do so. If somebody repeats the sin, somebody lies about it or whatever, there's a duty to bring it back up. There's a duty to deal with it. But you're not going to do it unless there's a duty to do so. The fourth promise of forgiveness, I will not bring this up again to others <coughs> without a duty to do so. So you see those are related. Not going to bring it up to you. Not going to bring it up to other people. Those are the promises. These promises, when you exercise the discipline of seeking to apply them, you can't make yourself forget, but these help you forget. You say, forgive and forget, but you can't forget. Okay, but these help you to forget. There are many offenses that you have not thought about for years, and you've forgotten them. You might be able to dredge them up if you look back and try to remember some offense. You can pick a particular person, try to meditate on them, and try to meditate and remember negative things that have happened in the past, but it would be real hard without you intentionally trying to dredge it up for you to remember it. If you apply these promises of forgiveness, the tendency is for the burial of past offenses into an abyss of forgetfulness. There's a beauty to that. They sink into the depth of the sea. And so it makes it so that you're, yeah, you've forgiven, but you really do forget. So when you engage in these things, one of the difficulties is you go, well, when are we done? When do we come to a conclusion in the conflict? Here are the acceptable types of conclusion. First, you can choose to interpret charitably what somebody has done. There's an offense that somebody commits, and you just say, you know, that could have been this sin, or it could have not, and here's how it could have not, and you just go, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, and you move on. No conflict. You just charitably interpret. That's the easiest way to deal with things. And I'll tell you what, if you can figure out how to do that for a lot of things, that's good. But when somebody has a major sin, you can't just do that. If there's a major sin, if there's a grievous sin, there's something the Bible defines as criminal, there's something where they're hurting somebody else, somebody who's under your authority is harmed by it, you have a duty to deal with it. But you can charitably interpret and you can overlook lots of things. Charitably interpreting is when it's not clear if something's sin. If something is clearly sin, but it's small and it's private, you can choose to overlook. And this should be how most sins are dealt with. 
charitable interpretation, or overlooking. The third thing is you actually go and talk to the person, and the person offers a just defense. And when they explain their defense to you, you realize, I can't really prove that this is sin. I'm not sure. Or maybe you go, yeah, their answer is, is clear. They've shown me how I'm wrong. It's your job to leave there and interpret them well, to interpret them positively. So the fourth possibility. Somebody acknowledges they're wrong. They give external repentance. They go through the A's of an apology, for example. And you give forgiveness. That is dealing with a real problem, resolving a real problem, and making it so that that's been concluded in such a way that now you're at peace. There was division, there was offense, and now there's peace. The fifth thing is, you can escalate it to the next level of Matthew 18. Until there's reconciliation, or until discipline's applied. So you look at that, those are the ways that things can go, and there are some hard cases where people, you go, well that's nice, that sounds really clean and everything, but, but what if I rebuke somebody, they reject the rebuke, and after I've rebuked them, I realize this doesn't seem worth escalating. Has that ever happened to anybody? You ever had that happen and go, I don't want to take this to the next level. This does not seem big enough to involve other people. Well, you have to be honest with yourself. A lot of the time, I think people stop there and they just resent each other from that point forward. You just write people off. You go, I rebuked this guy, I rebuked him in private, he didn't accept my rebuke, and now you just think he's a loser. No integrity, doesn't listen to anybody. So we we have to be honest with ourselves. If we thought it was a big enough deal to rebuke a person, and then they reject the rebuke, and we don't think that their rejection was legitimate, what's the actual probability that you're just going to go back to Things are swell, we're good friends, we're fellowshipping, we're working together for the glory of God. Hunky-dory, love this guy. Be real. Are you able to do that? And the answer is no. We think we are stronger than we are. If you have a conflict and you're not able to resolve it, you need to try to meet again and to resolve it. And if you can't resolve it after meeting a couple of times, you need to bring somebody else in. It was big enough to deal with. It's been opened. If you have not been able to close it, bring somebody else in. The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 18 tells us to do that. He says, you go to him in private. If he won't hear you, you bring witnesses. It escalates it. The next thing that's hard is what if you go through all this and the court makes a wrong decision? You go through all of it. And you even go to church court, and the church court makes the wrong call. Sometimes you might witness something. You might see somebody commit a heinous sin. You take it to the church court, and the church court says, not guilty, insufficient evidence. Sometimes that's the right call, right? If there's only one witness, for example, the law of God requires us to not convict a person. Two or three witnesses, right? So sometimes you're going to have guilty people get away with stuff. You should not separate from a church because of a right call to apply the rules of evidence in the law of God. Other times, there might be sufficient evidence, but the court handles it wrongly. If the court handles it wrongly, should you separate from a church? I'll tell you what, if a church bungles a case, fails, deals with it wrongly, but they're not saying that the offense, if it were true, should not be disciplined, then that's an error. It's a sin. It's a failure of the court. But it's not the same thing as calling sin righteous or righteousness sin. It's them calling the evidence insufficient. They messed up. And so I would suggest to you that 
Courts making a wrong call by dealing with the evidence wrongly is not something that generally should be separated over. If it happens as a pattern, if there's a change in the rules of evidence where people just don't, let's say all of a sudden we go, no, we need five witnesses to convict anybody. Okay, that right there is cause to separate from a church. They're throwing off the order of conflict resolution established by God. But if there are two or three witnesses and there's some confusion by the court as to whether those witnesses were saying the same thing or not, and they misinterpret it, and they just handle it wrong. That's going to happen sometimes. I don't think that's just cause to separate. However, when a court says, yeah, that person stole from you, but it was okay because they were hungry. That is now the court denying some truth and refusing to deal with discipline according to the word of God. And if that's the case, then you should protest and you should separate if there's not a repentance from that protesting. Now, when a court decides wrongly, whichever kind it is that we just went through, ultimately you have to leave the matter to God, which is different from overlooking and it's different from charitably interpreting. It's going, this court was wrong, I have been wronged, and it's not being dealt with. You leave it to God. If you have to separate from a body, you kick the dust off your feet and you leave that to God. But if it's just a matter of handling evidence wrongly or having insufficient evidence to convict, then the guilty party, you leave that to God. And if you leave that to God, you've done your duty and you look to God to fight your battle. And God will powerfully discipline those who fail to do their duty and authority and those who have wronged you and not been disciplined. God will glorify himself in that. That's a hard thing, but it's the right thing. And so these are the kind of possible outcomes. These are the hard cases. Ordinarily, the result's going to be the stuff that we listed above, but sometimes this can happen. This willingness to go through conflict is how you note those who cause divisions. And it's how you note those who cause offenses. If you're unwilling to go through biblical conflict resolution, we're not going to note the people who cause divisions and offenses. And if we do, we're going to do it tyrannically by not giving them process. Put yourself in the place of the person being accused now. Who here is without offense? Who here has never sinned? If you offend somebody, if you sin, do you want this to be applied to you or do you want people to just ignore you and leave you in your sin? Do you want this to be applied to you or do you want people to just avoid you without process? If you want to not be avoided without process and if you want to not just be left in your sin to be miserable then you have to be a part of doing this biblical conflict resolution. This is hard work. It is good work. It is fruit-bearing work. It creates blessedness. It guards the borders. It defends against the divisive. It defends against the offense causers. And it helps us to be humble. And it makes it so that we have something that will last more than 15 years. It makes it so that we have a church that, where there's training so it can be passed on from generation to generation. You can take your time, treasure, and toil and have it all be wasted by not having a culture that deals with conflict. Or you can deal with conflict and see your work established. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights? Mr. Nye? Um, Sure, thank you. Yeah, so the seven A's, uh, we talked about this before, and I forgot to mention it this time, so thank you for that. The, uh, the four G's, the seven A's, and the four promises come from Ken Sandy and his book. Um, I can't remember the name of it. He's a short one called uh, uh, Biblical Reconciliation. There's, there's two, and there's Peacemaker. That's the more famous one. That's the longer one. And I don't think we have any copies over there. Uh, but Resolving Everyday Conflict and Peacemaker are those two. Uh, and those come from that. 
And ordinarily I would have a footnote on here, so I'm sorry, I should have that in the handout. Um, those come from him. The acceptable conclusions of the conflict I made up, uh, but I think they are accurate. And um, thank you again for that, Mr. Nye. Great. Any other comments, questions, objections? Great. All right, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to apply these details, to go through conflict seriously, to help us to deal with the fact that we don't like conflict, we don't like resolving conflict, we don't like thinking about conflict, we would prefer to have peace and be left alone. And Father, I ask that you would help us to care to do the work of helping to create peace, to be peacemakers. Father, we thank you that you have pronounced a blessing on peacemakers, that your son has said, blessed are the peacemakers. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to care about that and to note those who cause divisions and offenses. Father, I ask that you would bless us with a a willingness to forgive each other, an ability to forgive each other quickly. We thank you for the work of Christ so that we have the ability to forgive each other knowing that we have been forgiven far more. We pray all this in Christ's name.